Uh, Then, congregation, in your Bibles this morning, we would direct your attention to Ephesians 2. We'll be reading from verses 11 through 18, and then focusing our attention especially upon verses 14 through 18. You can find this in your pew Bible on page 1,344. Uh, We continue to seek by uh, God's help to expound, to explain and proclaim the truth of the Word of God, especially in the book of Ephesians, making our way section by section. We come this morning by the providence of God to Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 18. But for a bit of context, we'll begin reading at verse 11. Hear now the Word of God. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God. Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, since the days of Cain and Abel, humanity has found itself in a near perpetual conflict. And you can read all throughout the Old Testament, and you can find uh, that many a time, person rose up against person, nation was characterized with enmity against nation, as the two seeds, so to speak, uh, the covenant line and those who are outside of the covenant line continued to historically progress. Uh, We find also in our own day that nation rises up against nation, And you can look at a variety of social and ethnic divisions within the human race. And it's one thing to observe that out there, so to speak, out in the world. Uh, But also divisions arise within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you perhaps are familiar with the history of the Reformed churches, more specifically the Christian Reformed Church in the 1920s and a split that took place in the Christian Reformed Church, especially in 1924. And there was the organization then of what is known as the Protestant Reformed Churches. And I had the opportunity, uh, growing up just outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, to drive by frequently the massive church building of Eastern Avenue Christian Reformed Church. A massive, massive building that in the 1920s was filled with those uh, who would gather to hear their pastor at that time, the Reverend Herman Hooksima, in the Christian Reformed Church. Now, after he was deposed from the Christian Reformed Church just a few blocks away, 
the first Protestant Reformed church built another massive, massive church structure. Filled in its glorious days, they say, of the upwards of 1,000 persons. So you have these two massive church buildings that would be filled with nearly 1,000 hearers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, only blocks apart. But it's been said that during the week, when the members of those two respective churches went about the everyday life, that if a member of the one church was walking down the sidewalk and saw a member of the other church approaching them on the same sidewalk, that eventually one of them would cross over to the other side of the road so that they didn't have to meet and greet one another. Now maybe we chuckle. Maybe we nod our heads and say, yeah, I can about imagine. Brothers and sisters, what a sad, sad testimony concerning the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The epistle to the Ephesians emphasizes the unity of the church of Christ even as it emphasizes the one Savior of the church of Jesus Christ. And echoing in my mind, and hopefully echoing in your mind also, is the prayer of our Lord and Savior in John 17 as he intercedes on behalf of those whom he has come to save. He says, Father, I will that they would be one. Why? So that the world may know that the Father and the Son, and also implied the Spirit, are one. And so to that end this morning, we want to turn our attention to the words of our text from Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 18, underneath this theme, an explanation of the peace of Jesus. And we'll seek to follow our text and unfold our theme by first of all looking at the idea of the peace, and then secondly, the work for the peace, and then thirdly, the result of the peace. So the explanation of the peace of Jesus, first of all, the idea, secondly, the work, and then thirdly, the result of this peace. Uh, the idea of peace, you'll notice that the word flows throughout our text, uh, beginning there already in verse 14, he himself is our peace. Uh, also, you'll notice it's there in verse 15, etc. Uh, what this word actually means, tied in with verses 16, reference to reconciliation, is a restored harmony between two parties. A restored harmony. And my dear hearers, this is the central essence of the gospel message. That Jesus Christ and His person and His work has come to bring about a restoration of harmony between God and man. Between God and human individuals who are sinners by nature, who have rebelled against Him, who therefore are alienated from Him, who are separated from Him. That God taking the sovereign initiative in eternity and in time sends forth the second person of the Trinity to reestablish this relationship of harmony. Uh, I think of perhaps an illustration uh, that may apply to some. Uh, earlier this summer, we had the opportunity to be on one of your farms. Uh, the individual who 
This farm it is knows exactly what I'm talking about, perhaps. The rest of you will be left guessing. Uh, but as we were there uh, fishing on a farm pond in the pasture land, uh, the cattle began to move from, from one area to another area. And they'd, they'd gone over a slight rise, a slight hill, so they were out of sight. And suddenly, uh, a calf that must have been either distracted or sleeping uh, was reminded that they had been separated from the entire herd and more specifically from its mother. And the calf began to beller, began to bawl. That's the idea of separation or of alienation. And that's what we are by nature apart from God's grace. Now, it's not just that we were ignorant or a bit sleepy or a bit lazy that God moved off over the horizon, but rather we rebelled against Him. We sinned against Him. But thanks be to God that He doesn't just wait on the other side of the knoll, the other side of the hill, uh, looking for us to find Him, but that He takes the initiative. That when we were lost, He came to find. And is this not why Jesus came in the Incarnation to seek and to save those who are lost? And so this idea of peace is that of a restored unity and harmony, a peace with God, God the Creator, God our highest good, a God the Infinite One, the Righteous Judge. Now let us be reminded this morning that He is indeed uh, the highest object of our affections. The Church Father Augustine in the 4th century approximately said uh, this famous statement that we have been created for God and that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. That is, in a restored relationship with God. And my pastoral heart is burdened for anyone who may hear these words who is trying to find peace in some other way. You can go to the ends of the earth in your pursuit of peace, but until you recognize that peace is ultimately found in a restored relationship with God, my dear hearer, you will never find peace. Because peace begins, first of all, with God. And peace comes through the forgiveness of sins. But having that peace with God, that relationship of reconciliation, flowing out of that restored vertical relationship between us and God. There's also then a horizontal peace, a peace between persons. If you look carefully at our text, verse 15, there is this so as right in the, the middle, basically the middle of the grammar of verse 15, having abolished, it begins in his flesh. We'll look at that uh, in a few moments. The law of commandments and ordinances so as to create. Now that, that's in essence a purpose statement. So as to create, the Apostle Paul says, in himself, one new man from the two. So notice there, the purpose of the work of God in Christ in part is to bring about a unified harmony among persons. If we have peace with God, that will have implications for our relationships one with another. Now, you have to bear in mind the context every time you read a text. Ask what the original context was. And we find ourselves here in the first century where you basically had two groups of people in the world of the Apostle Paul. You had the Gentiles and you had the Jews. 
Those were the social-ethnic dividers. And those two groups of people, by and large, despised one another. They despised one another. The, the Jews, characterized, sadly, by selfish, arrogant pride, would have nothing to do with the Gentiles, with the Romans. They viewed them uh, as the uncircumcised, as those who were outside of a relationship with God. Now, of course, they had to have some interaction uh, in daily life, but as far as they could, they would avoid the Gentiles at all costs. They would not eat with a Gentile. They would not engage in any unnecessary conversation with a Gentile. And the Gentiles, you might say, returned the favor. They looked with absolute hatred upon the Jews as this strange group of people. And they had all sorts of allegations and false charges against the Jews, but the Gentiles also were characterized by a selfish, arrogant pride. And for years and years, these two groups of people were at enmity one with another, hatred towards one another. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that when Jesus Christ came to restore peace between human beings and God, by the work which he accomplished, he also brought about a reunion between human persons. So that Jews and Gentiles, who were once infinitely separated from each other, at enmity with each other, now as they are brought into Christ in the new dispensation of the gospel, they are one in Christ. This is the remarkable thing about peace. But how does this come about? That brings us into our second point. We look a little bit more closely at the work for the peace. If you go back to our text, verse 14, I want you to see very clearly what the Apostle Paul says. He does not just simply say that Christ brought about peace, but look at the text very carefully in verse 14. He himself is our peace. Oh, we're getting close to the uh, Christmas season uh, and to the Advent season, uh, where oftentimes sermons are given that focus upon the incarnation uh, and it was not my intention, obviously. We're following the series through Ephesians. But you might say, here you have an Advent sermon. Here you have an explanation for who Jesus Christ is and why He came into the world. He Himself is our peace. And as our peace, He accomplished a certain work in abolishing the law. Abolishing, uh, here you look carefully uh, at verse 15, having abolished, that is, boys and girls, abolished means to, to throw out, to, to be done with. If, if your mom asked you to take the trash out of the, the kitchen uh, trash can, right, and, and take it out to the, the garage or wherever you just deposit trash, you abolish that. You just, you get rid of it. That's what Jesus Christ did. In his flesh, notice there the importance of the real human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ in the incarnation, body and soul. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, and then there's this explanatory phrase, the law of commandments. So the enmity is the law of commandments. 
Those are equated one with another. And then there's the further explanation clause in ordinances. Now, what exactly are these ordinances that are found in the law of commandments that create this enmity between these two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles? Basically speaking, uh, these ordinances were the aspects of the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law. So there is the moral law of God, there is the civil law of God, and there is the ceremonial law of God, especially seen uh, in the sacrificial system instituted in the Old Testament, followed for years by the faithful Jews. And we talked about this somewhat briefly last Sunday morning, uh, but in the temple court, uh, there was the outer court, and then there was the inner court. And only the Jews could enter into the inner court. The Gentiles were the ones who were far off because they, in that old dispensation, did not have the, the rights, so to speak. They did not have the basis upon which to enter into the inner court. So they had to, if they wanted to be a God-fearer, and there were, there were Gentile God-fearers, proselytes, God-fearers, if they wanted to follow the Jewish religion, they had to do so, so to speak, from far off. If you want to think of, you know, perhaps a, a stadium filled with fans watching a, a football game, these are the ones who are in the, the far, far upper deck, so far off that they can hardly even see the players on the field. That's where the Gentiles were. And then the Jews, they were the ones with the high ticket seats, right on the sidelines, on the 50-yard dash. Now, for some odd reason, our sanctuaries and our church buildings always seem to fill up from the back first, but that would not have been the case when the Jews went to the temple. They wanted to get as close as they could, but of course they couldn't go into the most holy place, only the high priest once a year. But now what Jesus Christ has done is He has abolished this entire system by His one work of sacrifice on the cross. So do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying for thousands of years in the old dispensation, underneath the institution of the ceremonial law, you Gentiles, you had to stay far, far, far away. And you Jews, you could come near. And that created a certain enmity, a certain division. But now, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that entire system has been abolished because it has been fulfilled in the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So when he said on the cross, it is finished, that applies also to the entire ceremonial structure that was a prototype of the sacrifice on the cross. So now, in the new dispensation, Jew and Gentile together can come near unto God through the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. The Jew who wanted to approach God did so through the work of Christ. And the Gentile who wanted to approach God did so through the work of Christ. You can think of it this way. You take Peter, a disciple, yes, with many shortcomings, but a disciple, a Jew, 
He could come to the Father through the work of the Son. And the repentant thief on the cross, a Gentile, he also could come to the Father on the exact same basis as what Peter could. There's no distinction any longer. And in contrast to the vain imaginations of our secular society, this glorious truth is the one thing that will really rid us of social distinctions and ethnic divisions, or at least it should be. Because the New Testament church is not made up of one social ethnic demographic. But rather, what do you see in the book of Revelation? A church that is made up of all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues. But you'll notice that in this understanding of the Apostle Paul, that the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus Christ is central. It has the central place. The cross, and when I, when I say that, I certainly hope, but I want to avoid being misunderstood. I hope you don't think of just simply a, a piece of lumber with a horizontal beam attached to a vertical upright post. But when I say the cross, we understand the, the work of Jesus Christ in His sacrificial death, His atoning death. And by God's providence with all that is in me, I have sought to unfold for us over the last year or so, over and over and over again, the central importance of that work. And why? A couple of reasons. First of all, I believe that our texts have demanded that if we're going to be faithful with our texts, we have to preach what's in the text. And what is in the text is the work of Jesus Christ. But also this, the one great unifier of the church is the cross. The one great unifier of the church is the cross. Any other basis for unity is superficial at best. Now we could say, well, our unity is that we are 98. 5%, I'm just guessing at a number, demographics of, of Dutch descent. If that congregation is the basis of our unity, that is sad. That's not to say that we're not thankful for our heritage and appreciative of our culture. But the unity of the church is not found in one common ethnicity. How could we ever believe such a thing and then open up our Bibles and read a text such as is before us? We could ask ourselves this question, would someone who does not share our ethnic heritage feel that they were one with us if they were in our midst as a fellow Christian? Our basis of unity cannot also just simply be in an absolute uniformity of personal opinions. There is in the body of Christ diverse opinions. The unity in our congregation and in our federation of churches 
and in the universal church is and must be in the centrality of the cross. Because that is the exclusive basis for entry into the kingdom of God. If you are a Christian, and I'm not saying that if in a questioning way, but if you are a Christian, what is it that makes you a Christian? You have to say, do you not? He himself is our peace. Christ is what makes me a Christian. And that's true of every single Christian. Every single Christian is a Christian on the exact same basis or ground. It's not as if some of us can say, well, I'm a Christian because I can quote Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology at will. Or I, I can quote reference after reference from the Heidelberg Catechism off the top of my head. That may be very good and very wonderful. But that doesn't make you a Christian. We might be prone to say, well, we're Christians because we do this and we do that and we hold to these good, solid, and maybe even biblical practices. Let me ask you, does that make you a Christian? Does the fact that I faithfully attend a conservative church make me a Christian? Now, it is certainly good that I faithfully attend a conservative, Bible-believing church that bears the three marks but that doesn't make me a Christian. Christ makes me a Christian. And I attend a faithful Bible-believing church because I am a Christian, not in order to become a Christian. And so the central place of the work of the cross is also seen, for example, in Acts 16, verse 29 through 31, when Greeks come to the apostles and they say, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? Do you know what the apostles told them? What would you say if somebody met you on the street this week in Pella? And said, excuse me, sir. Excuse me, ma'am. I know they wouldn't talk that way, but imagine that they did. Can you tell me what I must do to be saved? Well, the apostolic answer is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, that's challenging in its brevity. It's challenging to me in its brevity because I know my own tendency. I would want to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and do this and do that and do these few other things. But with apostolic authority, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the apostles answered that way because they understood that the cross is the only basis for entry into the kingdom of God, for entry into the church. And, and when a congregation recognizes this, it will bring them closer together. 
Just as in Boys and Girls, you can imagine how, how this works, right? If, if you are maybe on the playground, and it's, it's been quite a while, obviously, since I've been in elementary school, but you know, we'd go out on the playground, and the bell would ring, and I, I don't know how a bell still rings out on the playground. And, and when the bell rang, there, there'd be 100-plus kids out on the playground in all different spots of the playground. But when the bell rang, all of those kids were supposed to, at least if everything worked, were supposed to go to the one school building. They were all drawn to the one building by the ringing of the bell. During, during recess, all oh, kids ran everywhere. But when the bell rang, almost like a magnetic pull, so it should be in the church. When the centrality of the cross is appreciated, we'll, we will all be drawn to that cross. And we will meet one another there. And we will recognize that our unity is not in the fact that the majority of our last names begin with a V or end with a SMA. But we will realize, oh, you are here for the cross? So am I. You are here because of what Jesus Christ has done? So am I. You are a member of the church because of the death of Christ. So am I. And we will then realize that we are one. You see, this is in our third point, the result of the peace. The result is that there is only one way to approach the Father. You notice that in our text, uh, we're dropping down to verse 18. For through Him we both Jew, Gentile, whoever it may be, through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Just notice in passing uh, that this is a clear reference to the Trinity. One God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's also very plain in contrast to what is known as pluralism, when it comes to spiritual or religious beliefs, pluralism is the idea that there are many, many, many different ways to approach God that are all equally valid. That's a lie. There is only one way to approach the Father, and that is through the Son. More specifically, through the work of the cross. Because that is the only avenue for peace. You can think of 1 Timothy 2, verses 5, and I know it's not politically correct, nor is it acceptable by many, but nevertheless, it is the Word of God. The Apostle Paul says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Sometimes, I don't know if you have it, where you are going to drive somewhere, and maybe you pull up your map on your phone, if you're not sure the, how to get there, and, and your map may offer you two or three or four different routes. And typically, you always pick the shortest one. But there's options. You can go this way or you can go that way. Sadly, many would say the same thing about the approach to the Father. And in closing, I want to apply this especially to our young people and to anyone who may hear these words as you go through 
the high school years and as perhaps you enter into the college and the university years because these types of teachings are very, very popular in college and university campuses. Oh, you like this route to the Father? Oh, good for you. Enjoy the trip. Oh, you prefer that route to the Father? Well, blessings on your journeys. It all sounds very nice. The problem is it's a lie. If we were to pull up a spiritual, biblical map and plug in for the destination, a peaceful approach to the Father, only one avenue, only one route, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the wonderful truth. Every single Christian travels that one same route. And every single inhabitant of heaven will have entered into heaven through that one same route. The street which we call Calvary. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He Himself is our peace. And He comes to the preaching of the Gospel and He continually proclaims that peace saying wonderfully that there is an avenue for sinners to be reconciled to God, but there is only one avenue. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the simplicity of the Gospel, but we also acknowledge that in our own minds, sometimes we make it so complex. And in our complexities, at times we become characterized by attitudes of enmity. Uh, towards our fellow human beings. Uh, Lord, we pray that in this morning hour that we might recognize uh, by way of reminder that there is only one person who accomplishes peace, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that there is only one avenue of reconciliation. But may we also humbly acknowledge that those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are one with one another. And may that also become increasingly evident as we are brought to maturity in our faith and in our understanding. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.